Well, good morning again. We are almost exactly a month away from the general election, so it's pretty hard not to talk about it since everybody else is talking about it. But so this is what uh, I'll tell you that I see. I have um, the blessing of being a new resident in Pennsylvania, which means that I haven't showed up on the mailing list, uh, which is a blessing when living in a swing state. Uh, so nobody's calling us. It's like they don't even want us to vote, which I know is not the case. Because the reality is, is candidates, and I'm speaking in generalities, okay, but candidates will do almost anything to get your vote. They, they're, right now, they're doing just about anything they can think of to get your vote. Their goal is to increase their voting base. It's a tight election, and, and it's just a rule of elections is you're trying to get votes. And that can be a difficult thing because the way you behave and speak and act in a primary season is very different from the way you be, behave and speak and act in, an, in a general election. So in the primary, your job is to appear to be a party ideologue because you're competing against other members within the party to prove that you care about the issues of the party. That's the job in the primary. But as soon as you turn to the general election, it's like the flip switches. Now your job is to appear to be a centrist, to care about all all people. That Essentially, all of America should be your constituency, and you care about them in some way, shape, or form, in some fashion. And, and that creates a challenge because everybody wants to hear something different. They want their elected official to be what they want for them, and the elected officials are more than happy very often to be exactly what you want when you're there. And so you see it. You see when they dress in their hunting gear, when they're in Wisconsin, and they're in the auto factories in Ohio. I mean, come on, people. It, it is cheesy, to the outsider, if you're forgotten about Swing State or no one's talking to you, it appears cheesy because everywhere they go, they're in a swamp boat in Florida. and You name it, right? They're trying to be exactly that thing for that particular constituency because they're trying to build the biggest voting base that they can because there's this thought of this is, it's the election. It's the form of public opinion that decides who's right and who's wrong in this country. That, that's just kind of how it works. I'm not saying it's how it is, it's just kind of how it works. Well, what if Jesus were running for election? Would he do that? Would he try to be all things to all people? There's a moment in the scriptures... Uh, where it says in Luke, as the crowds increased. It's a section of Luke. It's the section that we're going to be in for the next several weeks that uh, kind of tell of how the ministry of Christ uh, worked with the increasing influence of his ministry. There, there was a moment in the ministry of Christ where he was very popular, that lots of people, throngs of people, we might say, were coming out to see him for various sorts of reasons. They were coming out to see him because they had heard about miracles. He had done miracles, and they were coming out to see miracles. And they were coming out uh, of the villages and towns to draw to him because they had heard that he had busted on the Pharisees, or, he, or you were a Pharisee hearing that you had been busted on, and you wanted to see 
Like, did this really happen? Is this exactly what? There are people coming for all sorts of reasons. Some people were a little more revolutionary, and they thought maybe this is the promised Messiah. And in their minds, they thought that this might be the man who would help us throw off the yoke of the Romans and once again assert our divine independence for which we were founded. There is all these sorts of hopes going on in people. And as a result, large crowds swelled. And then, to aggravate the situation, Jesus would, in fact... Heal people. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if there was a political candidate that came through here who healed somebody. You would go see him. You would skip your lunch. You'd pick up McDonald's and you'd go out to see. And that's kind of how this is happening is that people are being drawn out. They're, they're being drawn. And, and you imagine, imagine if you were a candidate running for office and you could, in fact, do miracles. Now think of that. I promise I will eliminate the debt. Done. Next one. I mean, wouldn't that be... Man, that would be power. If you could actually give the people what they wanted. That's what Jesus was. Jesus had all these people following him, all these people coming out to see him, all these people interested in what he had to say, all these people with hopes and dreams, and and, and Jesus had the power to, in fact, meet the hopes and dreams of all these people. And they come out, and they they come, and they draw to him, and it says this in Luke, it says, As the crowds increased, Jesus said, You are a wicked generation. That's what he said. He said, this is a wicked generation. That's not how you win an election. The question that we're going to be asking for the next several weeks is, what kind of followers is Jesus looking for? What kind of followers is the word of God calling us to be? Because Jesus is not a candidate running for election. He's a king who has come to earth to lay claim on his kingdom. And the question is, what kind of followers will we be? Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to your word, I pray there would just be a spirit of truth that would enter into our hearts that would allow you to point out in each one of our spirits that place where where we don't quite have things right. And Lord, I pray that in all of the hard sayings of Christ, we would still hear that because God loved the world, he sent his son. And so we might know that even in the hard teachings, there's a redemptive purpose. And so Lord, guide our, our hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll be in Luke chapter 11 for a few weeks now, and we'll be starting in the 29th verse is where we'll be. It's a short and challenging passage, especially to the crowd. And I'll start while you're turning there just to say, as a kind of a precautionary word, when Jesus says, this is a wicked generation, I don't think you should hear that as though he's accusing them in a sense of like, I'm done with you. He's using it more as a chance to challenge them. So it's a statement that's more challenging than it is like accusatory. And what I mean to say is, is Jesus is not, his ministry is not one where he's trying to drive people away. It's a ministry where he's trying to preserve his calling and his ministry. 
for what it is. And so when he says a hard thing, the goal of saying the hard thing is not, is not because heaven's full of people and they need less, that he needs to trim the numbers down or he only wants you know, this, this rugged few to figure it out. He's saying a word and he's trying to, with saying a hard word, trying to drive or straight into you so that you begin to ask questions of yourself. And so that's how I would ask as you would receive the words of Christ today is that you would allow it to kind of open you up and, and uh, hear what he has to say. And so this is how it goes. This is 1129. I'll read 29 to 32. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Just think about it. Look at, look at the reading, especially the 29th verse. We'll start there. And just think to yourself, why do you think the people had come out to hear Jesus? He seems to assume it in, in his first remarks. He says, you ask for a miraculous sign. There's this notion, this gathering has been drummed up because he had done a miraculous sign. And in fact, that's what often happened in the, in, as Christ traveled around town to town and village to village. He would go into a place, he would begin to teach Something would happen, they would bring someone sick, he he would cast out a demon or heal a cripple or or do something miraculous like that. And the next thing that would happen is throngs of people would show up, expecting him to do that again and again and again. And oftentimes he would have to move to a new town because they were miracle mongers. They were just famished for a miracle. And that seems to be what's, what's here. That seems to be what he's challenging, at least, when he says, you ask for a miraculous sign. And here he says, you ask for a miraculous sign, but you're not going to get one. And at least not the one you want. That's kind of what he's implying. Is you want me to do something right now, but I'm not going to do what you want me to do, is what Jesus says. He says, the only thing you're going to get from me is, and he uses this kind of enigmatic phrase, he says, but the sign of Jonah. That's the only sign you're going to get from me is the sign of Jonah, which for us feels very distant and separated from maybe our understanding of the story. I think even then it would feel blurry. Like, what is the sign of Jonah? In Matthew 12, this sign of Jonah is dealt with. Uh, the, the exact same scenario, the exact same account is told in Matthew chapter 12, but Matthew adds a little bit more. He says in the 40th verse of 12, he follows up with, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what's he talking about? He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. He's saying to the people, look, you've come to me to get something. You've come to me to feed your need or solve your curiosity or be impressed or be excited or, or be healed or something like that. And he says, and I am not going to do it. 
the only thing you're going to get from me is my crucifixion and my resurrection. I would ask this morning to this wicked generation, is that enough for you? Like, uh, there's various reasons why we've all come out. There's reasons why we've gathered around Christ. Certainly in our hearts, there are needs we have, whether it's job needs or marriage needs or relationship needs or child needs or career or or health, all sorts of needs, right? No matter what age of life you're in, this is still going to be an obstacle between you and the Lord or a path between you and the Lord. There's always some set of needs that we have that we kind of bring to the Lord and we want the Lord to solve these needs for us. And if we're not careful, that, that set of needs can become the entire framework of your faith. God is to you a need filler. That's what it is. And God here is saying, I'm not going to do that. Now, I'm not, I should stop and say, when he says no sign will be given, it isn't like this is the last miracle he did. Okay, so... It isn't as though, in the grand scheme of things, God doesn't want to meet some of our needs. So when your marriage is struggling, I'm not saying don't pray to the Lord because he doesn't care. I'm not saying that. Or when your job is in crisis, I'm not saying, well, the last place you want to take it is to God because he's going to bat you on the head and say, "That's not. you're not going to get anything. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God seems to be, Christ here seems to be very attentive to guarding against people who's, who are simply coming to him to have their needs met. It's different than when I come to the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ in worship, and as part of our relationship with that, we voice our concerns to him. That's very different from, okay, okay, yeah, God's been crucified and resurrected. I agree with that. Now does he fulfill my needs? Is that your faith? Essentially what Jesus has done is he's pointed to the one sign of his that's going to validate his ministry. All the signs and miracles that Jesus does, by the way, point to this one sign, that of the resurrection. You know, a a good example of this was the feeding of the 5,000. The accountant John, where Jesus feeds 5,000. What happens, But we tell that story in a flannel graph, kind of good news sort of way. What, what, What is, the story is actually somewhat tragic. Because the next morning, what happens? A gathering of people show up for breakfast. That's what happens. They all come out to find Jesus with gurgling stomachs going, what's he going to do for us today? And Jesus calls him out and he says, what would you come here for breakfast? And this, is not, this is not even the message translation. This is very vernacular. But you came for breakfast? He challenges on it. He says, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to feed you. In fact, he challenges them with an equally difficult teaching. He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. That's what comes out. Is I am, I, Jesus, am the only way that you can have life. And the people leave. They leave in droves. They can't handle it. They wanted a meal. They didn't want eternal life. They wanted a meal. They left. Everybody left but his disciples. And he turns to his disciples and he says, what, are you going to leave me too? Jesus, or Peter goes, well, where else are we going to go? Only you have these life-giving words. Which kind of follower are you? 
the resurrection has been given to the church as the sign to which we point that validates who Jesus is. The resurrection is in the faith, in your faith, to be not simply the gate that we walk through to get into the faith. It's the point that we head to. It's the center point of our faith, not the boundary marker. Some of us, we kind of assent to the the resurrection, whether it's at our eight-year-old baptism or whenever we're coming in, we kind of say, yes, I believe this happened. Now, what is the Lord going to do for me? And I'm saying that is the wrong way to think of it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center point of our faith to which we head to our entire lives. It drives our faith. It should define our faith. If, if Christ is not resurrected, we've wasted our lives. It's not, not what the Word says. Paul says if Christ isn't resurrected, we're to be the most pitied of all people. It's the only sign that matters. And in that being the only sign that matters, what's, what is significant for the believer is that because Christ was crucified and resurrected, so also can I expect to live forever. Because Christ has conquered death, and in conquering death has carried my sins away from me, I have hope that I might one day be able to be with the Father in heaven because my sins have been taken and death has been conquered. That's what's preached in the resurrection. And through that we gain a confidence to then ask the Lord for other things in a healthy way. Christ is saying, you need to replace your desire for stuff. Whatever that stuff is, it doesn't need to be material. Replace your desire for him to be just a fixer with the belief and the conviction that he has conquered death and given you new life. And he takes that and he shifts very subtly in the very next verse. This is a subtle shift, and he's going to do it next week too, so it's worth paying attention to. He says, the only thing I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, which we know is the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then he says in the 30th verse, for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. So he says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then he says, and I'm telling you, there's a, there's a, there is a, a turn here, okay? He says, and just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. So the sign of Jonah over here was the crucifixion and the resurrection. Our minds want to say, well, the sign of Jonah here is obviously the crucifixion and the resurrection, except for the fact that I don't think that Jonah portrayed the crucifixion and the resurrection to Nineveh. Are we supposed to think, in our minds, do we think that what happened is Jonah was gobbled up by a fish and vomited out on the docks of the harbor at Nineveh? And then everybody, well, you know, golly, that's amazing. Is that what happened? It's challenging to happen because Nineveh is in northern Iraq. It's a 450-mile walk from the ocean to Nineveh. So the reality is, is that the Ninevites had no knowledge. I don't think the book of Jonah gives us no reason to expect that the Ninevites knew about the big, huge fish. There seems to be nothing from what Jonah said that seems to recognize that the Ninevites knew about a big fish. There's none of that. The sign, apparently, this sign of Jonah, which is Jesus is talking about with the crucifixion and the resurrection, is not what the sign of Jonah was to Nineveh. The sign of Jonah to Nineveh was a man walking in going, this is a wicked generation and God is going to bring judgment. 
40 days and the city of Nineveh will be destroyed. And it's that that brought their repentance. It wasn't the fish that brought the repentance in Nineveh. In fact, in Jonah, it says in the fish, and the big fish vomited out Jonah onto the shore, and it says, and he got up and he went to Nineveh. That's it. That's, that's the whole account. Got up and he went to Nineveh. And when he went to Nineveh, he didn't say, let me tell you the story of what happened to me. I was on my way to Tarshish and a big storm hit. He didn't say that. He walked into Nineveh and he said, 40 days and the city will be destroyed for it has been wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the people repented in sackcloth and ashes and begged for mercy and received mercy. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, just as Jonah was assigned to Nineveh, a sign of repentance to Nineveh, a sign of conviction to Nineveh, a sign that they needed to turn from their wicked ways and turn back to the Lord or they would receive death. Just as Jonah was that to Nineveh, so the Son of Man is to this generation. How often in the text of the Gospels do we hear Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Is not Jesus' primary goal to work, challenge us on the issue of sin and separation from God? Is that not what the gospel is about? That is the sign to the Ninevites. And the next verses bolster this idea. Look at verse 31. It builds. So there's a slight turn in 30, and then 31 and 32 just build on the same idea. 31 says, The queen of the south will rise at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. What is, what is he saying? He's talking about the queen of Sheba. Right? In the account of Solomon, the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's great wisdom, traveled great distances with great wealth and great spices and great carriages of plunder and all sorts of things, and went and she sat before Solomon and she challenged him with questions. I heard you were the wise guy. And she starts, what about this? And what about that? And solve world peace and global warming and whatever it is, whatever it is, she challenges it. And through the whole thing, Solomon gives wise answers and amazes her. And what, what Jesus is saying is, is, The queen of the south will rise against this generation because for her, the wisdom of Solomon was enough. And this generation sits at the wisdom of one who's greater than Solomon and says, show us another miracle. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, one who's greater than Solomon is before you, and yet you want me to make you another meal or heal your broken leg? that that is the metric by which you're going to accept me, that that's the meter by which you're going to follow me, that you just might maybe follow me if I do this thing for you? Let me ask you, at the end of the age, when you sit on the throne and ask the Lord why you should be his follower, is it going to be that he says, because when you were hungry, I fed you, and when you were thirsty, I gave you something to drink, and when you were naked, I clothed you, and when you were out in the open, I took you in, and when you were sick, I healed you? Is that how the verse goes in Matthew? Or is the verse go this way? When Jesus sits on his throne and says to you, come in, and you say, why? Well, he say, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was alone, you brought me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. You clothed me. We have following Christ mixed up. And he says here, 
the Gentile queen of the south came and recognized Solomon's wisdom in all its splendor. And here's one greater than Solomon, and you're missing it. Because you want to see him do something. And he bolsters it again. He says in the 32nd verse, Likewise, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is before you. You see this? Once again, you have a prophet who goes to a Gentile people who do neither love the Lord nor know him. In fact, they were the arch enemies of the Israelites. And Jonah goes to them and he preaches truth to them and it falls on them and they repent and they ask for forgiveness. And he says, now one who's even greater than Jonah is before you. And I don't see that happening. Is the Christian life one in which we walk through these pearly gates of resurrection and then ask for stuff. I want to challenge, let me, let me start by challenging the church. Obviously on this, this throng of people who've come before Christ, among them must be true followers of Christ. You would imagine right in front of Christ would be the disciples and around would be those who are serious followers, and then it gets a little more diluted into people who are curious and skeptical and cynical and wondering and all of the sorts. But in this crowd, in this crowd he talks about in the 11th chapter, certainly the church, the gathering of God's faithful, must have been part of that gathering. And I, I would say this to you. Examine your faith. Is your faith built upon God giving you things? Take your last 50 prayers. Not counting the communion one, okay? Start before that. They don't want to throw off the average. Look back. Is it God, you know, help me out here? God, fix that. Lord, could you fix that? Sorry I messed up there, but could you fix that? I know I messed up there too, but you have grace, right? Could you give me that? How about that? Two of those? A red one. I'll take a red one. Raise there, lower that. Is that your faith? Did you walk through at some point in time? Did you say, okay, I believe in the resurrection. Now, Lord, this, here's what I need. I'm here to see a miraculous sign. Because I think the Lord would say, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment against you. Because she saw the wisdom of the Holy One and you don't. Do you think that the Lord is in the business of just pushing a button in your soul to fix your marriage? Is that how it works? Is that the miraculous sign you want? Lord, just fix my marriage. Like go inside, open my wife and I or my husband and I up and just cross, you know, fix the wires or do whatever you need to do. Is that, is that from all that we've read in this wonderful book, is that how God does things? Or does God take time to start carving into us saying, Here's what's wrong about you. Here's what's right about me. Here's how I desire to make you more like me. He's in a, he is a transforming God. He's a God who says, I've given you the counsel of who I am, and I've given you the counsel of who you are, and I count you on how, what I've done for you, and I've given you the full confidence through the death of my son that there is no limit that I will not go to make you a new person, that I desire that you would be a new thing, but I don't simply push a button. I give you wisdom and truth, and it's out of that wisdom and truth that I grow you into a new person. 
That comes from people who follow the Lord. How often does the resurrection even come up in your prayer life? How often does the centerpiece of our faith enter the circle of your faith? It just sounds, just listen to how this sounds. Okay, just listen to how your posture is adjusted when you begin prayer with, Lord, I know I don't even have a right to speak to you, but you sent your son who died for me and therefore I come to you boldly as you've told me to. Lord, I know that there's nothing I've done that warrants your mercy, that warrants your approval, that warrants your audience, but you've said to me that the blood of your Son covers me from all unrighteousness and that I appear to you as holy, that I am not simply another person. I have been adopted as your child, that I can call you Father, and I'm a co-heir with Christ. When, when, when you can pray that way, when that's part of your prayer life, that allows you, that ushers you into a place where you can say to the Lord, and Lord, my marriage, show me. Show me, Lord, that I might be more like you. Rather than a fast food, Lord, I need a raise quick. You will get no sign but the sign of Jonah. Is the resurrection of Christ enough to be a follower of Christ? Is it enough? Listen, Brothers and sisters, if your life is eternal, then your immediate crisis is a pretty small fraction of that. Open your eyes and look what God's done. He's given you eternal life and eternal splendor. He's called you to an eternal hope. That hope and what he's calling calls us gives us a confidence. And that confidence produces faith. And that faith produces steadfastness and perseverance and all the difficulties of this very short fragment of your existence. Just count your prayers. Be thoughtful about your prayers. The way we pray is the way we approach the Lord. To those of you who I think might say, I'm not sure I'm in the faith. I'm outside. This is what I would ask you. If you're here, you're, you're kind of following the crowd. You're curious about the Lord. You're not sure that you're a believer. And you let's just say that you have, because this is the most common breed that I come across in our community. You're interested in Jesus, but you got problem, all these logical, rational problems with miracles and God's stuff, right? So you, if you're the kind of person who says, like, I, I like what I see, but the whole idea of the earth being flooded, if you do that, you know. Like, if you put that back in my lap, is really... Or if I tell you, you know, if we're talking about the Lord and you say, well, I, I appreciate the truth of, of the gospel. You won't even use that word, but you, you know what I'm saying, right? I appreciate that, but the whole idea that a big fish swallowed somebody for three days, and I have to say, Jesus, irony is, is he uses it, right? The, the, really? That's what you want me to accept? This is what I would say to you. If you're that kind of person, if, you're, if you've held on to the rational and you don't want to make an uninformed leap of faith, I'm here to say, you're not alone. This is what I would ask you to do. Just for a period of time, I want you to grab that big basket of the miracles that you have a problem with, and I want you to set it aside. Just set it aside. Because apparently Jesus says, that's not central. 
Okay, I want you to grab this basket of miracles, and just for now, it'll come back, okay? So those of you who are like faithful, dynamo Christians, I'm not doing anything dangerous here. We'll pick this up in a second. Okay, I'm not leaving it there. I'm not putting it outside. Just set it over here for a second, okay? And then what I want you to do is follow the example of the Queen of the South and of the people of Nineveh. I want you to listen to the words of God in the Scripture for what they're worth. I want you to say, look, when it gets to the miracles, I'm going to put them aside. But when Jesus defines himself... I want you to ask yourself, is that right? Is that the kind of God that the best side of me hopes for? That's what I want you to do. When Jesus Christ begins to talk about good and evil, I want you to say, is that what the best side of me validates? Not the worst side of you, but the best side of you. Even when he pushes on you, when he pushes you and pushes you, because there's areas you know where you're sinful and selfish. And when he pushes on that, does the best side of you say, it's a good pain? I just want to say, exercise that. Listen to the wisdom of the word. I mean, and I don't say the red letters. Every single letter in here is red, for crying out loud. The whole book is holy and true. And as it just falls on you again and again and again, does the teachings and the wisdom of God validate who he is? And if he is God, then kneel to him. Because you know what? The resurrection is an easy miracle if you believe he's God. So is the flood. So is Jonah. So is everything. The hard part of accepting a miracle if you don't believe in God is that you don't believe in God. Does God call it straight? That's what I want to ask you. When you read this word, does he diagnose your condition and does he come to bring the cure in the most loving possible, most wonderful, imaginable way that we've ever thought of? He gives his own son for you. Jesus Christ is not running a campaign. He does not need your vote. He's a king who's laying claim to his kingdom. And so the question is, what kind of follower are you? Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask your blessing on this people, your people, that we might follow you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray that we would have the faith of Peter to say, where else do we go? You alone have these life-giving words. You are the Holy One of God. Lord, convict us and coach us and just work in us and change us so that we're always not so need-driven, Lord, but that we come to you. We come to you to rejoice in what you've done for us at the cross. And we come to you to repent because of what you've done for us at the cross. And we come to you to get strength because of the resurrection and and boldness because of the resurrection. And we come, and and day in and day out, we begin to nurse immortality from the resurrection, Lord, so that we might be the kind of followers who do things that regular people do not do, who showed a greater form of mercy and a greater form of justice and a greater hope and a greater love to a world that is not listening, Lord. I pray that you would make us that form of follower. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.